Hello and welcome to The Art of Aging, a part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, which is part of United Church Homes. On this show, we look at what it means to age in America and in other places around the world with positive and empowering conversations that challenge, encourage, and inspire everyone everywhere to age with abundance. Our guest today is Victor Wang, and this is part of our Aging and Innovation series. And today we're going to be pack, unpacking artificial intelligence, a subject that no podcast has ever tackled before, <laughs> but more specifically, <laughs> artificial intelligence in the world of aging, aging wellness, and age tech. Just to give you a little bit of background on, on Victor, Victor is the founder and CEO of Care.Coach, which is a San Francisco Bay Area generative conversational AI company that is truly on a mission to improve the health and wellness of millions, particularly older adults. Victor is one of the world's leading experts in generative AI and its applications for health and wellness. And like me, he's also been a proud resident of Canada. And he started his journey into tech at MIT by working on one of the most Canadian things I can think of, telerobotics. And I'm only keying on this, Victor, because, you know, one of the examples I saw was that you were, you were you know, the robotic arm on the space shuttle. The Canada is, is an example. <laughs> Canada, exactly. And if you know anything about Canada, man, do they, they put it on the money, they put it on, Canada is very proud of the Canada arm and they should be. Yeah. But, but it was his grandmother really inspired his current work. Living alone in Taiwan, it was next to impossible to get her on a video call and the isolation affected her health and wellness. So the how might we question then became, how can I apply all my skills and knowledge in AI and robotics to transform the world of senior care aging and wellness. So again, that's what we're talking about today. AI, how it can help with this transformation. And Victor, welcome. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. So Victor, I'm going to start this by by asking a question I ask a lot of guests, especially you know guests that we have on the Aging Innovation Series, which is you could be doing a lot of stuff. You could be developing a new sports drink. You could be developing, I don't know, fill in the blank. But you know, you really chose to put your energy into this world of aging, this world of age tech. Why are you so passionate about this space? It's where I can make a difference. I think it's where a lot of technology innovators can make a difference. It's, it's underserved. And so, you know, most of the technology innovators out there are building technology for people like themselves because it's easier to imagine what somebody like yourself would want and then to build that thing. And then to realize, oh, I don't like this. Let me fix it. And so because it's easier, I think that's where most of the attention goes as far as software developers, and, you know, data science, AI applications. But then there's this huge population of people that we care about, like, you know, people in your family and just people that have contributed a lot to society. And now maybe they're in a situation where they could use a lot of help. They could use a lot of support. Um, they could use some predictive AI, they could use some companionship AI, they could use some healthcare robotics or whatever it is. And there's really not enough innovation going on, you know, to help this population. And it's a, it's kind of a, a type of work where you feel your day-to-day -day kind of value that you create and you feel the impact that you have on people's lives and you can see it. And, you know, it's just a rewarding thing to do. So... That's awesome. And but you're putting your energy into care coach, care.coach. So everybody care.coach. Yeah, I like to say the dot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, uh, 
we have these like Medicare Advantage and, and other like health plan customers, and sometimes they have a job title within their organization called Care Coach. So we have to say we are Care Dot Coach. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, it also makes the contact info super easy because I'm Victor at Care Dot Coach. That's my email address. Yeah, you know, hit me up. <laughs> Days where you only can only have a dot org or dot com or dot net, and now you can have dot coach or dot whatever. And that's that was just, a long time ago. Yeah. What? Are, yeah. Don't remind me. <laughs> but tell me more about Care dot Coach. You know, what does it do, and what was your approach to developing it? Yeah. So Care dot Coach has a whole platform at this point. So. The part of it that we're most known for that we've been doing the longest is this avatar product. And essentially the idea is was originally to solve senior loneliness. And essentially through this idea of teleoperation, telepresence, and leveraging global workforces. Because people talk in the U.S. about the caregiver crisis and the silver tsunami and the caregiver ratio is declining and what are we going to do about it? And it turns out there's plenty of workforce. There's plenty of empathic, intelligent, caring people to support the aging population here in the United States. They're just not in the United States. And so it was this idea that if we could leverage that workforce, we could create a lot of good and not only solve a big problem here in the United States, but also just employ a lot of people around the world and you know, give them good careers and give them this opportunity to do something that matters from the comfort of their own home. And then the way that we connect them to this population in the U.S. is you might naively think like, sure, just put them on a video call and you know, provide a lot of psychosocial support, like companionship conversation. And we wanted to provide this 24-7. And so you, you might staff this 24-7 team around the world and just kind of connect people over video calls whenever they want. It turns out that that would be a really poor user experience. So so I went around and interviewed, for example, home care agency owners and assisted living owners and like geriatric care managers and so on. And what you discover is that this fragmentation of that end user experience or the, the fragmentation of the care experience is one of the biggest reasons why people who are even fortunate enough to be able to afford 24-7 senior care will refuse it because these are like very private things going on. Like you're talking about your incontinence or you're losing your memory or your depression, some family dysfunction, and you have to end up talking with seven or eight different people at a 24-7 kind of home care arrangement. And, and people just don't want to do that. And so we unify this whole 24-7 team together into a single persona through an avatar. And then the avatar has the same face and voice and personality and memory 24-7. And it makes it a lot easier to build a continuous relationship, especially if you have cognitive impairment or memory impairment. And, you know, do I remember you? Like, what do we talk about? What do we... It's much easier if it's just one consistent persona, but also for, you know, normal aging, uh, you know, cognitively intact, memory intact kind of use cases. It's, it's helpful just to have that continuous experience. Um, yeah. And then you can choose what the avatar looks like. So we want to make it fun. You know, usually mm -hmm. people don't want you know, you got you, your daughter's worried about you. You got this nurse. You got you're supposed to talk to your doctor. You got this other specialist. Like, do you really want a virtual nurse that's supposed to take care of you? You know, generally, you you'd rather do something more interesting or fun. And so, the avatar actually looks like a little dog or a cat, 
and we have a lot of fun conversations with people like about prayers or their kids or what what they're watching on TV, some sports game going on, or just sometimes people just have to vent or they're frustrated or worried about something or, or kind of actively listen. And then that relationship forms the foundation of all of the coaching that happens with Care.Coach. And so we have other parts of the platform that will inject into these human-driven conversations various evidence-based protocols that drive outcomes like you know improved diabetic self-management or reduced risk of falling and things like that. And that's why the health plans pay us as our customers. Right, right. right. So when we're talking about the experience, I'm just trying to unpack this a little bit. So, you know, an older person, let's say it's somebody with uh, cognitive challenges, would receive a care.coach. It, it might be a bring your own device or it would be a portable or, or be, a device would be used and they would log into the care.coach platform. They would be introduced to the option of an avatar. And, uh, you know, I, I love the idea of, of, of having, you know, a dog or a cat or something like that because, you know, a lot of the avatars we see, you know, are developed by 28-year-old developers and 28-year-old developers, you know, create these really idealistic looking young women or, or yeah, men or whatever. Sure. And that's not exactly like me, you know? And so, but the, the conversational AI that, that comes to life in the avatar, is that driven by this uh, this individual that you're hiring from overseas? Is, is that the relationship? Or, or how that's- does that happen? Yeah, yeah. That, that's primarily it for the Avatar product, and that's definitely how we got started. Yeah, and by the way, they don't have to log into anything because for this product, we ship a device, and it's a managed device that we enclose in a facility that we call the Hospitality Hub in Kansas, and then that, that facility ships out this device. You turn it on, and once you turn it on, you never turn it off. There's no buttons to worry about. It connects by itself to cellular data, and... And, and you don't have to log in because actually at Hospitality Hub, we logged in that device for you and we completely manage the experience. So we have people, you know, if you're good with technology, it's fine. It's just convenient and easy. And on the other end of the spectrum, our avatars talk with people and, and help people out with all the way up to and including end-stage Alzheimer's who have like really no idea how the technology works. So there is no logging in. We just deliver the whole experience on this magical artifact <laughs> that shows up at your door. But yeah, as far as what generates the intelligence, yeah, the way we started was by employing these global teams because it was 2012 when we were founded. And back then, you know, despite being at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, I realized that technology just wasn't good enough. Like, you know, AI is just not good enough to really be friends with an older loved one and alleviate any of that loneliness in any real way. But then, you know, over the course of the last 12-ish years, a lot has changed. So, so at this point, we have a generative AI engine that's proprietary. And then we also, even before that, started to build in software automation for all the like evidence-based health coaching protocols. So it's not entirely generated by a human. Well, and, and, you know, we are recording this podcast in October of 2023. And each year just seems like it's, you know, you're getting more and more into the, uh, you know, in, into the use cases. And, you know, I, I think I read somewhere, you know, that last year, you know, generative AI, conversational AI programs had trouble distinguishing bird tense in German. And yeah. everyone's talking about it, taking the bar exam and you can get a 90% score on, 
on the bar exam, right? So AI seems to be a real thing. But, but where do you, I mean, where do you see the evolution of capabilities going? I mean, are we hitting a wall in terms of anything? Because as I understand it, you know, anything we're talking about with generative AI requires training. And that training is based on both the available content that's out there. Mm-hmm. I think that's why Reddit shut down their APIs because if their site was getting scraped, you know, they, everything was categorized, everything had upvotes and downvotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there's a world of Microsoft right now where it promises to use your internal data as kind of its own kind of training base and things like that. But I think, the, I guess, the two ingredients that I understand for generative AI is a base of content and then human beings to interpret what this content means. And is there still plenty of opportunity there? Or, or you know, or kind of like, because the stories are starting to emerge that, that, that we're hitting a wall. And I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. I think the wall is a wall of comfort. <laughs> the technical limitations are basically unlimited, but we are... It's very similar to what happens with, for example, like surgical robotics or or automobile AI, you know, like self-driving and things like that. I think in reality, we're at a point where the machines can do something pretty closely equivalent to the quality of a human or like, you know, piloting an airplane, like really there's software that does all the work. But at some level, the human is comforted knowing that a doctor or another human is kind of like pulling the trigger or doing some important aspect of it, whether it's the fact that there's still a pilot in the plane that could be flying itself or the fact that or the train that could be running itself. Or for example, like a surgical robot. Even like 14-ish years ago, I was working on a surgical robot to insert a needle into a man's perineum and drop off some radioactive seeds to kill your prostate cancer. So that's pretty scary. And I was helping with some of the work on this like needle-guiding robot to where a guide would the robot would put the guide in a certain place and then the doctor would by hand push the needle through the guide to get the radioactive seeds into the right spot. And then, so I asked my professor at the time, like, why don't we just add one or two extra degrees of freedom to be able to insert and rotate the needle as needed? Like what, why do we even need the doctor? He's like, we don't, (laughs) we're able to do that, you know, just as well as a doctor, but the patients wouldn't want it. Like, the, the patients are comforted by the doctor doing the final step. So, you know, it's, to this day, that's kind of a large part of the bottleneck, I think, is, is human comfort. Not to say that you don't need to know what you're doing when you work with some of these generative models and that there's not things you need to understand and take care of. Like, for example, have a proper human approval, human in the, in the loop process. And th- there's a lot to it. But I think... What I'm noticing is a, probably the biggest barrier is people's comfort levels. And that's always going to be the case when it comes to new technology. You know, I'm thinking, first of all, I think, you, you know, the story about the, the doctor being involved reminds me of an old marketing story about when cake mix was first introduced, like instant cake mix mm-hmm. introduced in the 1950s. And it only sold well. It didn't sell well at first, but then they added in a step, which is add an egg. And when you added an egg, then, you know, you felt like you were actually cooking something in the show. So it's kind of you know, shot up, you know, because you've got that little art to the science, I guess. 
that's an interesting psychology of how people <laughs> kind of personify this art to something that should be very precise, right? You know, it, there's the, yeah. and then the other place where my mind is going right now is just with the, you know, first of all, at one extreme, when you think about AI, you know, there's the example of, oh gosh, if you tell AIs to make as many paper clips as possible, then suddenly the world is going to get covered with paperclip factories because it's going to turn into the Terminator and Skynet, and that's what's going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you have it as another dynamic. Uh, you have these companies that are actually going to uh, Capitol Hill, and they're saying, you know, hey, you know, we need to think about this. We need to regulate this, you know. And on, on one hand, you look at that and saying, oh my gosh, if Google and Apple and, and Microsoft, and they're all going to Capitol Hill saying, hey, you know, we're not sure about this, so you may want to sort of put some boundaries around it. You can interpret that as, oh my gosh, it is going to take over the world. But then the last time I heard a story like that, Victor, is when all the cab companies went to the government and said, oh my gosh, you've got to <laughs> regulate taxis because there's this new thing called Uber coming. To what degree do you think the you know those companies are scared of the paperclip scenario or that they're scared of somebody in their garage or in their basement or somewhere just coming up with a much better search engine, a much better, you know, do you think that they're legitimately threatened that someone's going to eat their lunch? I think that's an interesting analogy, Mike, with the cab companies, because it's an interesting analogy, although there's a big difference, which is with the cab companies, Uber was a newcomer to kind of, as, as far as the incumbents perceive it, whereas with these companies that are pro-regulation on Capitol Hill, it's not as if there's a new company rising to eat their lunch. I think they do believe they're going to be part of the pack that's going to... There'll be many winners. You know, like the foundational models at this point are rather commoditized. So like, you know, is Microsoft that much better off than Google or is like, you know, how good is Anthropic? I mean, you could you could say something now, but three months later it might change. And, you know, everybody's pretty much competing on similar terms. And so I don't, it's a little bit different because I don't think it's like some newcomer is going to eat our lunch. It's more like everybody's dealing with the same technology, the same fundamental architecture of these transformers are called. And I guess there's a, a worry that if the government doesn't step in, you know, somebody might go out of line and like not exercise best practices. Whereas most of these large companies seem to be fairly responsible. In fact, the thing that they have to be responsible about is in some sense ethics and or like morality and, you know, the, in some sense, the people behind the company care about civilization. But also I think another big factor is these are huge huge for-profit companies that are public and are trying to go after a multi-billion dollar market and billions of people served and they have already huge brands to protect and so what happens is just from a pure brand value preservation standpoint in fact they are incentivized to be very conservative and safe like you'll notice in the news maybe like um somebody figured out that you know even though 
there's maybe some copyright questions around Mickey Mouse and you don't want Mickey Mouse flying into the Twin Towers because that's an offensive image. Somebody figured out like, oh, draw me a picture of a cartoon mouse flying a plane with uh, two tall towers in the background. And because you didn't trigger anything like that, it'll actually generate an image and then the world gets outraged. It's just a distortion because, you know, the most frequently occurring images might be the Mickey Mouse and the Twin Towers. Yeah, yeah. So so the Bing, like, like image creating Gen AI actually produced this like Mickey Mouse in an airplane flying towards obviously the Twin Towers and then the world is outraged. And I don't think the world should have been outraged. I mean, this stuff is a tool. So obviously, like, if I wanted to draw a picture of Mickey Mouse, you know, like, I could have done it myself. There's like, the only it just was faster because of the gen ai but the world likes to get riled up by this type of thing and then you'll notice that immediately afterwards microsoft basically like nerfed that feature and now it's just not as useful anymore so actually what happens mm-hmm. is because these big tech companies have such big brands to protect they're actually really on top of this stuff and they're constantly responding and like nerfing their own products and making it like actually a lot less useful in the interests of being safe and protecting their own brands, uh, much more so and much quicker than you could possibly expect legislation to force them to. Like, it's a really big deal for them to protect their own brands. That's a great perspective, Victor, you know, because, yeah, I mean, again, you know, the value of brand is just, you know, tremendous. I mean, we had, we had the windshield replaced on the car the other week, and my son knew the safe light repair, safe light replace jingle because it just comes on so often. I mean, that's a huge amount of, of, of investment. And you got to think that, you know, if you, if you say to an AI engine, draw me a picture of a cartoon mouse, you know, that, that X percent of images that, that are training these systems are Mickey Mouse. So it's going to, it's mm-hmm. going to show more. So it's, it, it, and I, today's analogy day on the show, it almost seems like uh, because you and I both have Canadian heritage, you know, it's it almost seems like a hockey game where you sort of, you know, you skate too far out and then you got to pass the puck back, you know? Yes. Let's go out and see what this tech can do. And oh, wow. And everyone's, you know, people always are going to, you know, just try the boundaries of anything, right? And then it reveals, and oh, mm-hmm. there's the boundary. Now we have to reset and reset. And, and, mm-hmm. but, but, but framing the, the, the motivation for so and brand, brand protection is, 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 you know, it's very revealing, you know. I think the key there, Mike, is that, um, different, the different people should have a different boundary and different use cases should have a different boundary. But the problem with like a lot of this rhetoric around these large language models and kind of people's perceptions of them is they've only tried the ones that big tech co- companies have released. And so, so, you know, as we just discussed, these big companies set a certain boundary from a brand protection standpoint. And so, so then it'll be useful for, if you just want to do things that are like very conservative and like you want a conservative like assistant that will answer questions and you know summarize documents and write stories or something then that's great you know use a big tech company solution but if what you're trying to do for example is solve loneliness and you're trying to at scale use gen ai to build relationships that people enjoy engaging with and that you know people want to talk with this gen ai the same way they want to talk with you mike because you're thoughtful and maybe you challenge them and you have a good sense of humor and that then maybe these big tech companies the boundary is set suboptimally it's it's set very conservatively to a point where 
what we notice is the behavior you get. You might think of it as like butlery. You know, they're very mm -hmm. subservient. They don't very come across proper, as a friend. Very, yes, they don't come across as a yeah. friend. Yeah. And like all the interesting conversations people have with people they trust, you know, like you, you probably talk about like religious beliefs or politics, you know, things like that, you know, real friends talk about. But you'll find that you can't talk with, for example, ChatGPT about these things in any real way. Because if, if you start to say anything that might be you know, a screenshot ends up on X or whatever might be offensive to the company, suddenly the large language model will just spit at you some boilerplate like, well, like all religions are something and, you know, we should. Right. So that's fine. You Sure, you're right. Yeah, we sh let's respect all religions. But like, can we just talk like friends and can we like share some opinions? And so that's kind of the direction that we need to go in order to actually solve loneliness, right? People want to talk about the things important to them. And a lot of times the things that are most important to you, <laughs> you want to post on social media. So, And that's the thing too, because, you know, you're, I mean, my mind is spinning in a couple different directions right now. And, and I do want to sort of unpack this in the world of age tech and loneliness in particular, because I think that there's a huge mm -hmm. opportunity. And I think there is this ethical question. But almost like, you know, from a pure economic standpoint of view, and going back to the earlier point about eating lunch, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of, if people are going to seek that type of an experience from AI and they believe it's valuable and established brands will not go there, would you, and, and I'm sort of thinking about the early days of the internet too, where people found, you know, when, before 4chan became 4chan for real and those sorts of messages where, where people are kind of like, trying to get at an edge experience within something new, do you think that there might be, I mean, do you think that we might start to see some actors in place where they will kind of risk and will put these edgier conversational AI models out there? There's definitely ones out there already. Some of them are quite well-funded. The difference is that as far as I know, they're going for extreme scale right off the bat. And so essentially everything's being done by the AI. And so then you got to go to like how these models are trained to begin with. So GPT-3 has existed for a long time as a large language model that was trained essentially just to predict text. You give it some text and it'll predict what, what probably is going to come next based on all the text it was trained on. And as a result, it wouldn't really do what humans always want it to do. For example, if you ask GPT-3, like, can you write me some code to calculate pi or something like that? You might actually, because it learned from a forum post where somebody asked a question and then the reply was, why don't you do it yourself? <laughs> or like, there's so many solutions to this already. Why are you posting this here? Like you, GPT-3, for example, might very well spit something like that out because it's a likely response, but it's not what you wanted. And so how did they actually go from GPT-3 to GPT-3.5 Turbo, which powers the free version of ChatGPT. Oh, I'm so glad the word is, turbo is in it, by the way, because, you know. I don't know why. I'm much proud of the 80s when turbo, I mean, you had turbo sunglasses and turbo aftershave and, and turbo, I'm, a, I'm a car freak, so. so. Yeah, yeah, presumably there was a non-turbo version. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's all right. I don't. I've never used the non-turbo version, but yeah, I think colloquially people would just say 3.5, but technically it's 3.5 turbo. And then what they did, what OpenAI did to get there, was they hired a team of. wasn't even that many people. You can look at their research paper that they published, and they actually, to their credit, they thank, they credit and acknowledge every single human labeler that helped create ChatGPT 3.5 turbo. And what they did was it took GPT three, and they had it. You know, they prompt, they, they they prompt, and they get all these outputs, and then they have these human labelers that amount to a, a little less than thirty. It was, it was around thirty people, not that many. Yeah, and I imagine they don't disclose for how long, but I imagine it would have been a couple months of work for thirty people as like a little research project. And they would go in and they would rank these results. Like from this prompt, you generated these versions of responses, and this one's the best. This one's next best. Like this one's okay, but this one's horrible. And from that, they run a cycle called reinforcement learning with human feedback, where, where they keep doing this. And it progressively learns, like, not just to predict from like an unsupervised training corpus, like what words are likely to come next given the prompt, but what words are likely to satisfy the human that gave me yeah. the prompt. And that was one of the key innovations to. To create this experience that everybody went crazy about with ChatGPT, where like you ask it something, you you ask it for something, and it basically does what you want. And so the problem is that unless you're doing that, you're going to be using kind of like a more limited version of like you can do you can fine tune your models to do more of what you want. But the thing that seems to have the most powerful effect is reinforcement learning with human feedback. And so, so what we do at Care.Coach is we have this team of humans staffing our avatar, as we've always done. And so they have a level of skill and empathy and intelligence in, in forming conversationally supportive relationships with older adults and people with disabilities and so on in, in a Medicare and Medicaid context. And they've been doing this for years, and this is their career. And that is the level of skill and empathy and intelligence that is providing the human feedback when we do our human our, our reinforcement learning with human feedback loop. Whereas some of these other companies, like I mean, I'm sure they have their own proprietary confidential processes, but I'm sure they don't have the same level of human empathy and expertise, especially in a Medicare and Medicaid healthcare context. Right. That's actually the limiting factor. I think you alluded to this earlier, Mike. Is like the humans that are training the model are the limiting factor in how good the model can get. And with care.coach, because we've been doing this through this 24 seven human team and we have, we not only have a bunch of historical data to fine tune on, but we have this like ongoing dynamic ability to do the RLHF training. That's I think what sets us apart. We're in a really special spot to push this technology forward in a way that actually builds real relationships in a healthcare supportive role and safely too, because that human team, we also pull in real time to to edit things. So for example, when the AI, the, the other thing to understand about the technology is like when you have one of these use cases, like any kind of mass consumer chatbot, you're serving a, a huge enough population that you can't really afford to have a lot of human review. So you'll say something and the chatbot will just reply right back. And you might think that's just the performance of the AI. But in fact, before it replied to you, 
what the model generated was a series of floating point numbers, or like, you know, with zero point something, zero point something. And so for each token or, or bundle of characters in that sentence that it's going to send you, it actually has some sense of the probability of fit there. And so if you look at that in the aggregate, you can actually make a calculation as to like how how confident or how certain it is about that response. Now you don't see any of that when you're just normally using Bing Chat or ChatGPT or any of these like like these friendly chatbots. And so you get a certain experience. But actually, if you behind the scenes, if you're designing the system, you can cause it to where if it's not very confident, or if it's detecting certain situations like safety or health related type matters we in real time can pull in one of our health advocates to take a look at that and potentially edit it to be safe or edit it to be more right. engaging or right. effective. And, um, it's in, and it's in the context of, you know, serving an older adult, serving someone with cognitive limitations or so exactly. on. The type of, of persona that you're working with, this is a virtuous circle where the conversational interactions can kind of get better and better, both mm-hmm. on a specific level for that person, but you're also building up just, the specific set of knowledge on these people. And it strikes me, I mean, and, and when we first met, and, and we met at, a, at the AARP Tech Collaborative Conference a few months ago, and you know, I heard you on our panel, and you said something there that really struck me, where if you're talking about geriatrics, you know, if you're talking, I mean, if you're a cardiologist, you know everything about the heart. I'm paraphrasing you, by the way. You're going to do this. <laughs> You know, that you know everything about the heart. If you're in geriatrics, you have to know everything about complexity. And it seems like that these AI models, what they're good at is making some semblance of order out of seemingly complex inputs, right? Yeah. So, so I can give you a heads up on some of the stuff that we're doing. I mean, yeah, I don't like along those lines, we have a model where. It's actually not so much that we have a model. It's like we have a system by which we can take foundational models and upgrade them to be more empathic and better in a healthcare supportive role. Because the thing is, like every couple months, the the state of the art and what the best foundational model kind of changes. So we've set ourselves up to basically like not care that you know. It's like, do you use Windows or Mac? It right, doesn't right, really matter. Right. But then what we do is we take whatever is best and then. We put in all of our own training to then elevate that foundational model to become best in class at these empathic healthcare supportive relationships conversationally and like long-term relationships. And then that's a skill. You can think of that as a skill. It's as if you took a college educated person, this foundational model from off the street and they had no context or anything. You can prompt them. You can be like, okay, college educated person I found on the street. Like what is two plus two? And write me a poem and it'll be able to do these things. But then you train this person that you found off the street with a decent start of an education to be more empathic, talking with seniors and, and talking with people with disabilities and so on and being appropriate in a healthcare supportive role. And then it turns out that if you think about it, that will involve, I mean, this is like like centuries of interaction we can just like throw in there and imbue this college student with like, like li- lifetimes of talking with seniors. And then suddenly this person has this skill that if you think about it, it also includes some understanding of geriatrics and senior care and the fact that like, oh, you talk to this person and 
they talk about, you know, they're unsteady and how they're worried that, you know, they feel dizzy when they stand up. And then soon thereafter, they're talking about how they were in the hospital because they had a fall. So all of these things, you know, in, in many lifetimes of conversationally supporting this population, not only do you learn how to talk with them better, but you experience all of these things and you get an intuitive sense of the things that matter in, in, in aging and how these things are related. And then so we, we take that and then actually we're adding in, this is a, something called Project Augur that we presented at the National Pace Association Conference a few weeks ago, or a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly pace. And so we have a new initiative here where we're collaborating with one of the leading pace, pace like innovator pace programs in the country, where we're feeding in the EMR and claims data from a very complex older adult population. And we're actually layering it on top of this engine that we use, this conversational engine. And I'm basically transforming the healthcare information, the claims and the EMR information into a form that, that this model understands. And the idea is that when you put all of this information into the same model, you start to build on, it starts to build on itself. Instead of like training a separate model that's going to predict hospitalizations, a separate model that gets good at talking with seniors, a separate model, you put it all into one model. And just like a human that has served as a caregiver for 20 years and then got their medical degree, they would be a very different type of doctor. They probably have like really good bedside manner and like, very strong empathy for a certain type of patient or if you had a if you had a you know somebody who worked as a nurse for a few years before they became a doctor like that would that would be a really interesting background and that would be a very different and probably like a better doctor actually and so by putting all of that experience and training into one of these models we're we're in progress of building basically this this kind of overall kind of geriatrics model that will start to develop emergent properties that's what it's called is like when you have these huge complex large models and you throw in training data of various sorts the model develops what's called emergent skills that it didn't have before like for example if you if you trained one of these models to answer questions about accounting and then you train the model to produce poetry with a limerick rhyming scheme you might find that the model itself figured out how to write limericks about accounting. And it could be, (laughs) you know, the world's greatest accounting limerick writer. And you didn't even, you didn't even train it for that. I'm I'm sure right now the world's greatest limerick uh, accounting writer, the human being out there is quaking in their boots. when they (laughs) That was my thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that's what we're building, and yeah, it's really exciting. And, and I mean, I, I mean <laughs> way because you know, I think we all see because you know, we all in this world, we we all understand and see health inequities. We all see the impact of depersonalization of care. The fact that you know, uh, to quote somebody I I respect, Anthony Evans over at Pure Healthcare, ninety uh, percent of people with chronic disease believe it's up to them and them alone to manage that condition. I mean, people really do feel marooned a lot in the healthcare system, and this has promise. And I want to cover maybe just two more questions on the subject before we get into the end of our podcast. I think the first one is, and one has to do with ethics, the other one has to do with speech interpretation. So mm-hmm. 
So in terms of ethics, you know, we are all thinking about the benefits of the scalability of these types of companions, given the workforce issue, and especially if, you know, it can get better and better at personalization and actually give you, give somebody an entertain. I don't say, I'm not going to say meaningful experience, an entertaining experience, one that's fairly sticky. But just like we talked before about boundaries, you at care.coach are likely very involved with the ethical question because of the audience you deal with. And that must have led you to make some decisions about the own boundaries that you will carry forward. And can you, can you, are you able to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an evolving space as the AI gets like, better and better. We've always had to deal with interesting boundaries because, you know, when you get into geriatrics, you also experience a lot of kind of geropsychiatric challenges and, and people's behavior can be, you know, pretty eccentric or unexpected if you're not really used to it. So we've always dealt with kind of interesting boundary issues or sometimes, you know, like some, for example, people like to vent to their, right. to their avatar but then sometimes it gets like really extreme and like an abusive kind of thing. And we have to decide like, how do we, cause then we have like these health advocates in the back that are experiencing it. Right. And so we always have to balance oh dear, things yes. like, like, like teaching the health advocates how to have a, a, a healthy perspective and like, okay, if they're verbally abusing the avatar, they're not verbally abusing you they don't actually know you. They're just, there's something going on in their life. Uh, like or, a or huge chunk a of our population. They're, they're at, if they're at that stage where they're large, the swear words and dementia, that's part of the brain. Yeah. Lar swear. Large portions of our population have diagnosed like Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. A lot of it is undiagnosed as well. And, you know, people have bipolar, people have all sorts of of mental health challenges and like you know we're there to help them so we always have to balance like you know, educating our health advocates and supporting them and having kind of like internal pathways for our own team to kind of decompress a little bit if it's tough to handle versus like at some point we sometimes recommend to the health plan like hey, we should probably disenroll this person like this is not a healthy yes. relationship um so that's something that we've always had to deal with. And on the, like, other examples are like, you know, saying I love you. So we, this is such a common thing. We developed a policy where when our client tells the avatar, I love you, then we can reciprocate. So we're allowed to reciprocate, yes. but, but we never initiate. So, so that, that's another interesting one. Hold on, hold on for a second. Alexa, I love you. Excuse me. It's a song Alexa. now. It's a song. Yeah. Alexa, stop. Sorry, just testing. Just testing. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Again, let me pull the entire interview over to the side of the road while I do that. Um, <laughs> the, other, the other question uh, is more of a technical question. We look at different stages of AI, and I guess everyone has like different categorizations. And some of them are fantastical at this point, you know, about you know being self-aware and things like that. But there seems to be a level of 
uh, accomplishment within AI that maybe has yet to come. And, and the question is, is it going to and how soon is this idea of intuition, in, in, the, 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 the cadence of a voice, the, 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 the trembling of a voice, the joy of, a, you know, just basically not so much the interpretation of the words, but the intonation and how mm. that could be an additional piece of data that could size up someone's wellness. Yeah, that one's an evolving field. And actually, that starts to get into another ethical thing around like, like kind of health equity, because another big thing that we do that's related to ethics is like make sure that our solutions are well de developed for and kind of like equally functional for the populations that we support, whether it's like English or Spanish and like, you know, for Hispanic populations. Uh, we do like concurrent development of in multiple languages and like we make sure that it works well in classifying responses uttered by like Jewish people or, you know, mm. by Hispanic people who like word things differently or African-Americans who word things differently. Oh, sure, and we make yeah. Sure yeah and so then when you add in like intonation i guess that's a pretty interesting part of it too we haven't really gotten to that ourselves there are companies that specialize in like processing a voice sample and using ai to detect if that person has depression or even potentially diagnose things like like neurological conditions like like alzheimer's and things like that there are companies that do that we haven't really gone down that path yet because when things get challenging, at least through the avatar, we can rely on our human health advocates to come in and use their human brain to get a sense of how to respond appropriately. And then, you know, we have another product called Care.Coach Farah that's like largely generative AI powered that there is no intonation because it's text. So it's designed to engage mass populations through text messaging for Medicare Advantage populations primarily so yeah we haven't gotten too much into that although mm -hmm. i can tell you that like the voice production system that we use a lot of our newer devices will use one by microsoft on azure which you actually have to pay for depending on how much it's used but we found it rather worthwhile because it's a lot more natural than what you get built into these android devices these days and then you can you know you can make you can make custom voices, which we haven't done, but you can. And then either way, they have certain voices where you can put in tags. So you can actually cause the voice when it's produced to sound happier or like say a certain word more seriously, for example. So that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because we because that, that's the coaching element of that, right? You know, that's the coaching element of mm -hmm. you know, I'd like to be, I'm, I'm your friend right now, I'm talking to you, but also, you know, here's this new medication you're taking. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more straightforward and slowly yeah. and all that to kind of, you know, grab your your attention. Yeah. I, yeah. I could, I mean, we could carry this conversation on for a long time. <laughs> but unfortunately, we do have a little bit of a time limit here. But I just, Victor, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. We do have another set of questions for you. There are three questions that you'll ask. I'd like to ask all guests is about your personal experience in aging. Is it okay if I ask these questions? Sure. No, Mike, you can't. Bye. <laughs> okay. Somebody's <laughs> going to say no one of these days. But first of all, I mean, before we get to that, where can people find you? Tell people, tell our listeners what, how they can reach you. There's literally care.coach. If you type that into your address bar and hit enter, that's the entire URL. But sometimes that's too simple. So I have to say www.care.coach. 
and then you hit. Oh enter. yeah, because you, you got a key. And then, yeah, yeah, and it's well in the transcription software <laughs> the AI uses www as their key for doing something with the. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a URL memorization. Or Right. And my email address is victor at care.coach. And, right. you know, if you have a loved one that can benefit from like companionship or like coaching to better manage their chronic conditions or better support some dementia challenges, anything like that, we are available to consumers, but mostly we sell into health plans. And then we also help uh, younger people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Okay. So we're in several states for these IDD services and like, you know, people with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. We're, we're also there for psychosocial support and kind of day-to-day -day coaching. So feel free to reach out. Absolutely. So that's care.coach. Easy as that. And uh, so here's question number one. Victor, when you think about how you've aged, what do you think has changed about you or grown with you that you really like about yourself? I think I just mellowed out. You know, like <laughs> I, I think, <laughs> you know, like a lot of... You know, it's like when you run a company or like, you know, when you start a startup and there's a lot of problems and, and a lot of problems to solve and things like that. Like at some point you're like, you got to pick your battles, pick your, <laughs> pick what you really focus on and things like that. And so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Here's, here's question number two. What has surprised you the most about you as you've aged? That actually, yeah. I mean, like back in the day, I'd be like pretty, I'm pretty sure I have Asperger's. So it's like, I would like zero in on things a lot and like, like very high attention to detail. We're, 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 yeah, we're, we're all neurodivergent around here. So yeah. Very high attention to detail and like um, perfectionist type character and like, uh, I think I'm still like very direct as a communicator to this day, but yeah, I think when I was a lot younger, I was probably like more, even more offensive than I <laughs> than I am today. And like I, I wouldn't have thought as a, as an ADHD guy, man. I I swear I can, I can look back on my childhood. My poor parents. I know I was just like sand sandpaper just for the, with the way that I was back then, and and. But have you found that you know, over time you sort of embrace those parts of you and, 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 and kind of put them to work in the right ways? I mean, that's it's kind of neat. When yeah, and like I, I've developed this appreciation for like soft skills that I, I think when I was younger, I didn't really respect. You know, like I think when I was younger, I would respect like engineering skills or like technical skills and like all the soft skills are just, I guess if you can't, if you can't code, I guess you got to learn some soft skills, right? But, but <laughs> But um, I think oh, look at this guy. I can't code. He's probably yeah, he's got some stop skills, you know, whatever that might be. Uh, yeah, and I think when you're in that mindset, I think a lot of young people who are like technical or engineering minded probably have a, a similar mindset and probably don't think that they'll actually change that much. But yeah, I'm surprised and, you know, positively surprised that I still have a long way to go, but I've, you know, developed a respect for, you know, like, the ability to like compliment somebody and like make their day better and you know like provide you know positive feedback and appreciate somebody and like make somebody like feel good about being on your team and well but and uh, also i mean he's right up front i mean you're seeing people's lives change for the better not only with you know 
the, the people that you serve, the, the end users mm-hmm. care about coach, but also for the people that are in those positions to coach. Because, yeah, yeah I mean, there could be challenges, but there also must be these wonderful moments of insight and connection and grace and all the rest of it that kind of make the day special. Yeah. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time staffing our avatars. Like, you know, when the team was, I mean, the team had to start from nothing. So, like, at, at one point, you know, I was the one staffing the avatar. And, and then we had more more staffing and more staffing. And eventually I didn't have to staff the avatar anymore. But yeah, a lot of the conversations in the early days was me. Wow. And in fact, I, what I kind of noticed was like, because, you know, back then I was still very like, I guess engineering and like all about hard skills and stuff like that back then still. But I think what, one of the things that I noticed was it's easier to, it's easier to engage somebody in like a a pleasant or supportive or positive and like soft skills, good kind of way through the avatar actually. Cause, cause I felt like I was, I'm not myself anymore. I'm like, I can, I have an opportunity to, to reset and be like, I am this supportive dog and I'm here, you know, I am empathic and compassionate and supportive. And and it was actually like a little bit easier, I think, for me to develop these skills. And I think like, I can go in person. I, I, I talk with older people all the time and, and things like that in person when I'm going to the like, skilled nursing facilities and like, and doing interviews and things like that. And we'd like run activities in these communities to, you know, like learn about our population. But so, I, but you know, I have to develop these skills. And so I think initially actually it was like a, it was like a cognitive aid to be like, Oh, I'm like role-playing now as like this ideal companion. So that was interesting. And that gets into maybe a variation on the third question, because, you know, you're obviously inspired to create this, accompanied by your grandmother and the third question is really around have you met people that have inspired you to age with abundance and now you've also had this experience sort of you know you know working directly with with older adults have you found any sort of traits that they embody that sort of that i want to have that when i'm older or they've inspiring your own when, when i'm that age i hope that i'm as blank as this person is yeah, I mean, one person that comes to mind is Jenny Chen Hansen. So, so, so she basically popularized Pace as the CEO of the first Pace program in the country. And then I didn't know anything about it, but I mean, she's not that old, but she, she's like, she's she's like somebody that I look up to as like, when I'm older, like, I want to continue to like, you know, contribute to society and like advise young people and like, and give back to the world as much as she does. Because, you know, like, I didn't know about any of this stuff. You know, we had these companion avatars, we're, we're selling into non-medical senior care, and like, like private duty home care, things like that. And then somebody made an intro to Jenny and she's like, hey, Victor, like, yeah, these avatars sound amazing. Have you heard of PACE? Have you heard of these programs of all-inclusive care for the elderly? This is where like, this kind of companionship can really make a difference intrinsically because loneliness is like a chronic condition that affects morbidity and mortality as much as any other chronic condition, but also like maybe you can help support these people in, in different ways because these people have like an average of eight chronic conditions and go to the hospital and, and ER all the time. Like, 
are you interested? I can make a couple intros. And then that's what got us into like health insurance, basically, because these are a special type of health plan. And it's been completely transformative to Care.Coach as a company. And to this day, you know, we're in almost 20% of all the PACE programs in the country. And it's kind of when the company actually started to take off as a result of that. And so, so yeah, I want to be like that, you know, at some point. PACE is taking, I mean, PACE is taking off. I mean, it is. So it's wonderful to meet it and also to be, to learn from it and and to grow with it. And eventually PACE, you know, I mean, your market's not just Mm -hmm. PACE. What a great grounding and foundation. Yeah, basically, like one day, like I want to be able to just have these conversations with young people and like, you know, in like one little conversation be completely transformative, not just to that entrepreneur, but to like the entire company and to all the organizations they serve. And like, it's just really interesting that, you know, as you develop your wisdom and experience and and connections in the industry, how like, you know, even if you're not on the ground doing all the work anymore, as you reach retirement age, and beyond like you know i want to be i want to be able to give back in that way where like one one conversation can have such an impact on not just one person but like an entire organization well victor i mean you i just have to say thank you sincerely thank you for your time today on this podcast yeah lots of food for thought i'm glad that we're kind of memorializing in this conversation i'm interested in you and sorry most importantly thanks to you our listeners for listening to the abundant aging podcast which is part of our Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, which in itself is part of the United Church Homes. And, and we want to hear from you. I mean, what, what compelled you about this conversation? Where do you think that the AI space is going? What drives purpose in your life? Because it all, we do this for you, and we hope that we are serving you. You can see us at AbundantAgingPodcast.com. You can also, I have to say hi to my mom, by the way. I hope I spoke slowly enough this time, Mom. But I'm saying you were on YouTube on United Church Home. Hi, hi Mike's mom. Mike's <laughs> awesome. Please don't criticize him too much. And Victor, I really hope that we do. <laughs> I really hope that you, we, we have you back on the show as we continue to kind of follow along the journey of where CareDoc coaches. You're a dynamic industry. Lots is changing, but it's also a very purposeful spirit and a very strong need out there for what you're trying to do. So plug is care.coach, right? Victor at care.coach. Is there anything else that, that we should know about you before we sign off? I'm certain my mom is going to be watching this. So so hi, mom, as well. Hi, Victor's mom. He's yeah. doing great. Great interviewer. <laughs> Interviewing me, sorry. That's awesome. All right, well, thanks. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. <laughs>